Father, thank you for your word once again. And I'm overwhelmed by the fact that I have misused your word for for so many years. I've misunderstood it. I've given my own interpretation instead of seeking yours. And now we turn to this great book of Romans once again for a shortened session. Uh, But in this short session, would you give us fruit for our labors and help us to grow in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus? For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I think we're in... Yeah. I think we're in Romans 4, are we not? Is that right? Yeah, Romans 4. Okay. Um... Okay, great. Thank you. That helps a lot. Uh, So 4, 16, and 17. Uh, I'm almost there. I was never good at sword drill. I hated sword drill. Uh, Yeah, I always had Bible paper and couldn't turn it anyway. But um, 4, 16, and 17. Uh, For this reason, it is by faith so that it might be according to grace. And notice that if, if something is by grace, it is by definition also by faith. If it's by faith, it is also by grace. Grace means no works. So so does that mean that as a man under grace, I am free to sin all that I want? We're going to ask that question in chapter 6 when when we get there sometime in the next millennium. So, (laughs) uh, but... uh, but the answer, of course, is no. Then the question comes, why not? And Paul's going to answer that question in chapter 5. Grace reigns through righteousness. Grace produces works, but grace doesn't depend on works. Okay? So uh, it's, it's uh, everything here that we're talking about in reference to Abraham and his inheritance of the world and, and right relationship with God everything is by grace so it's also by faith um, so um, the the effect of that in verse 16 is so that the promise might be confirmed to all the seed not to those who are of the law only so so are circumcised Jews potentially justified by God by grace well Paul is the writer of the book is. Yes? Yes? Do you remember when Paul went back to Jerusalem uh, at the, after the third missionary journey? And, they, and, and James says, do you see how many there are who, are, who are who have heard about you and they've heard that you're teaching Jews not to live according to the customs? Uh, in order to show that they're wrong, we have some men who have taken a vow. We want you to go and... and uh, uh, pay for them to get their hair shaved. <laughs> when you cut your hair off, it's kind of a sign of a new beginning. So you come to the end of a, a course of life and you're starting a new course of life. Does that make sense to you? So the Nazarite, at the, through his vow, doesn't shave his head. At the end of his vow, he does shave his head. So he's, he's been through a period of life that he's, that's over now and he's moving into a new state. A woman who is uh, a, a war captive whom one of the soldiers wants to marry, must cut her hair um, because she's leaving the old life, entering a new stage of life. Does this make sense to you? Uh, so 
these men are under a vow. I want you to go and pay for them to have their heads shaved. What, what he doesn't mention here, because he doesn't need to, uh, is that it's also going to inc- include animal sacrifice. Because one of the things that you, one of the sacrifices you must make when you fulfill a vow is a restitution offering. We call it a guilt offering, but it, the, the word would be better restitution offering. And in the restitution offering, you're acknowledging that whatever service to God you've been doing during your vow is now terminated. You won't be doing that now because the vow is ended. And so you're making restitution for whatever further service might have been made. And then second, you make a, a, I forget what else. I don't remember whether there's a purification offering, but there's also a fellowship offering that's made. And and, uh, Paul in Acts, when you read this story in Acts, I'm looking for the reference uh, it may not be here. Uh, it, it, there is no reference to it. In Acts mm, 24, 25, 26, someplace in there, uh, Paul is actually going to the temple to give, uh, uh, to give notice of when the sacrifice, the offering will be made. The offering is not 10 bucks. The offering is an animal that they're going to... And Paul's getting ready to make animal sacrifice after the third missionary journey. Are you with me? It's not because he thinks he's going to be righteous by doing that, but this is what being a Jew with with a standing temple and an authorized priesthood does. And so um, he's going to do that. That that seems so contrary to us. What, What is he doing? After all this writing that he's done, what is he doing making animal sacrifice? But there are reasons for that. So, the law. So, if it's if it's by faith, it's also by grace. That means no works to gain favor of God. But if it's by faith and grace, that's what produces good works. So it's it's not that there are no works whatsoever, as Paul will make clear in Romans twelve thirteen and fourteen. But it is that the role of the work is different. Uh, so verse, um, uh, for this reason, it's through faith. It's according to grace so that it might be, um, the promise might be confirmed to all the seed, not to those who are of the law only, but also to the fa- those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the sight of, and, and here, I think the, the unit breaks here in the middle of verse 17. I have a comma in my text, but I think that there should be a period here. There, there is no punctuation in the, in the original text of Greek. Uh, everything was written in capital letters, and, and there were no even break, word breaks. <laughs> so there was no punctuation at all. Uh, you're thinking, how could they read it? And, and it's the same way you've perhaps seen a paragraph that's left out the vowels and you can read it because you know English well enough to be able to read it well people who could read Greek could read it quite well so I think this is the the break should be not at, at verse 18 but in the middle of verse 17 in the sight of God whom he believed who raises the dead and calls the things that do not exist he declares that the things that do not exist are as things that do exist, who, against hope, in hope, believe that he should become the father, uh, uh, the, uh, oh dear me, I've, I've lost it. Uh, 
against hope, believed that he should become the father of many nations, according to the thing that was spoken to him, uh, thus shall your seed be. Now, we're starting here, and I haven't even gotten the PowerPoint caught up at this point. I have no idea how far into the PowerPoint we are. Um, let me try it here. That's chapter 6. Oy vey, come on now. I, I have told you about the new... Catholic Jewish Christmas Carol. Haven't I told you about that? You don't know about this? Oh my, you need to keep up with the times, folks. Catholics and ecumenism is all over the world. It's called Oy Vey Maria. I thought, you, I thought you'd appreciate that, but you definitely yeah, don't. <laughs> you, you gave it all the appreciation it was worth. I understand. Uh, let's see. Um, now here we go. Now we're ready. Um, we've just come through 15 and 16, and we're ready to go on. I, I want you to notice, though, in this pattern, let's see, this may still not be where I need to be. No, it's not. Here we go. 16 to 25. That the promise comes to all the seed by faith is demonstrated by Abraham, who risked everything on God who raised Jesus from the dead, providing that justification, uh, pr- providing that justification is accomplished. So, or proving that justification is accomplished. In this, we looked at verses six, uh, four, 16 and 17a. Only faith can, uh, only by faith can the promise come to all the seed. And now in 17b to 22, and on through 25, we're going to be talking about Abraham's faith. Abraham gives the example of faith, which risks everything on God, uh, on the God of all possibilities. And in verses 23 to 25, Abraham's story was written for us who believe in Jesus, who was raised from the dead, to prove that our justification is accomplished. So, four elements of faith. We're going to go through this again. But it's important to me. Uh, folks, We have, I have never been in a church setting where anybody has stopped to define faith. I've never been in one. Um, so I've got to remedy this as much as I can in, my, in, in the small groups that I deal with. Four elements to faith, knowledge, uh, assent. And, and I've left the Latin word here, fiducia, because I don't want to prejudge anything on this. And then hope. Uh, knowledge, to, to show that knowledge is an essential part of faith, John twenty thirty one. But these are written, and I've used the King James again as a kind of baseline translation, not because it's the best of all translations. It's a very, very, very excellent translation. Amazingly excellent. I can't believe the achievement that, was, that, that, that the King James is. Uh, but, but these are written that ye, may be, that ye might believe that, and what follows the word that is the information you need to know for saving faith. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, believing, you might have life through his name. So two basic ideas. In, in knowledge, I need two kinds of knowledge of God. I need to know who he is and what his plan is. So who is he? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What is his plan? 
by believing you may have life in his name. So I, I have to have two kinds of knowledge to have genuine biblical faith. But that in itself is not faith because there are lots of people who know the claims of Scripture that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Son of God, and the claim that by believing you may have life in his name who have no faith at all. So knowledge is not faith. We tend, unfortunately, as evangelicals to, to, to boil the gospel exhortation down to getting your doctrine straight. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Yes. Did he, do you believe that he died and rose again for sin? Yes. Do you believe that he died and rose again for your, your, your sin? Yes. But that's just getting your doctrine straight. I, I, so, again, knowledge can be something that you have but, but reject. So a second aspect of faith is ascent. And I find that people don't know what assent means, so I have to define it. You, you accept what you know is right and valid. So um, accepting what you know is true. Matthew twenty one thirty two, John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. <laughs> they knew him. Yeah. They knew what he said. So they had knowledge. But what's, it, what's wrong here is they didn't accept the validity of, their, of, of what he said didn't accept the validity of his message. But the publicans and harlots believed him, <laughs> which, which was called a slam. The, the problematic term is fiducia. It's problematic for you because it's Latin. <laughs> it's problematic for me, though I know some Latin. I, knowing Latin didn't help me here. But this is the term that the theologians generally use for the third element of faith. And I I, I will take us back to First Peter one now, um, and verses five and eight, especially. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. We li- we read that a few minutes ago. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Do you notice the word "seen" here? Yeah. Pay attention to that. That's important. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now. Yes? This is called... What are you thinking, Chago? This is very similar to the fiducia from Roman contract law. Is it? Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the issue here is that we're dealing with poetic parallelism. This is the standard by which we recognize poetry in the scriptures. Right? Uh, almost any verse that you know from Psalms or Proverbs will probably be in poetry. Um, if you omit Psalm 23, 1, give me any other verse you remember. Anybody? Let not your heart be troubled, also. That's not from Psalms and Proverbs. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, the the Lord. Say again. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Be not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge Him. These are synonymously parallel lines. Trust the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Is defined in terms of in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will He will direct your paths. Uh, you said. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lambs. Yeah. The Lord with gladness. Yes. Into his presence with okay. Um, 
these are synonymously parallel lines. If you can have synonymous parallelism, what would be an alternative? Opposites. Yeah, opposites. They call it antithetic parallelism. So you have Psalm 1-6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But, and very, very commonly in Psalms and Proverbs, when you have antithetic parallelism, you have the word but someplace in the verse. So the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Um, What does God's knowing the way of the righteous mean? Yeah, but what does it mean that he knows the way of the righteous? Um, he obviously knows the way of the wicked too, but he doesn't. But the text doesn't say he knows the way of the wicked. He makes the way. I mean, he's the one who establishes. He establishes the way. The effect of that is the righteous always achieve a godly outcome, because God. See, when God, when when Adam knew Eve, it wasn't that he was aware that she was over there. Yes, there was an intimate engagement in in a relationship that yielded fruit. And if God knows the way of the righteous, He is intimately involved in the way of the righteous, seeing to it that that way succeeds. But the way of the wicked will perish. What is that saying? He's not involved. He's not involved, but he is involved. He's not. He's he's so it's opposed to his purpose. Yeah. So it's not, that verse is not even saying that the wicked will perish. It's saying that the very plans of the wicked have to fail. Does this make sense? So you've got this antithetic, antithetic parallelism. Note that you have the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So you have tying the two lines together, yes? Here in verse 8, I have not seen, not see. Yes, this is, this is synonymous parallelism. Paul is using the term based on Roman contract law. Okay, yeah, let me, let me pursue this for now. Okay. Um, verse 8 then is saying there is a synonym for, uh, for faith. What is the synonym for faith? I don't know whether you can pick it out since it's underlined in italics and bold print and yellow. Love him. Loving him. Believe in him. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know whether you can find it or not. <laughs> But Stand on your foot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Is that going to be on the test? It's going to be on the test. <laughs> the, uh, the, the issue is that loving God, or, or fiducia, that third element of faith, is entering into our love relationship with God. Um, so, um, I, Romans 10, 6 to 8, cites Deuteronomy th- uh, uh, 30, 11 to 14, but the righteousness which of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. Well, he's, he's cited... Um, two statements from from Deuteronomy 30. Very frequently, when you see a New Testament quotation uh, from the Old Testament, the author of the New Testament text is picking out a quotation that that is not just appropriate words. 
it's actually bringing a whole context to thought. We, we need to turn to Deuteronomy 30 and look at it here. Uh, I'm sorry I robbed you of 20 minutes of time today. We only have nine minutes left. But uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 is, is among the last words of Moses. Uh, and, and I want you to see the time frame in which he places the ideas that he is presenting to them. So look at verse 1. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and the curses I have set before you, and you come, and you come to your senses while you were in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. This is in the far distant future when Israel is driven among all the nations of the earth. This isn't even Babylonian captivity. It's not even Assyrian captivity. This is, this is well after that. This is our day. So someday when, when the curse, Deuteronomy 28, the final curse of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 is that they'll be driven from the land and be exiles in the earth. So when all this has come upon you and your children... Uh, you and your children return to me uh, to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and all your soul by doing everything that I command you today then he will restore your fortunes so it all depends on Israel's obedience yes yes it's what it sounds like isn't it um um then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your exiles are at the farthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you, you, uh, multiply you more than he did your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart um, and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love. love the Lord your God. So what's missing in Israel is a wholehearted love for God. The solution is for God to circumcise their hearts. How can they ever come to obedience and doing all the things that are commanded unless God does some work in their lives? Mm-hmm. And his promise is, when you have been dispersed through all the world your God is going to come and he's going finally to circumcise your hearts he commanded them in 1016 to do that it was exceedingly difficult to circumcise your own heart Um, not even sure what it would mean but a circumcised heart Deuteronomy 10 is part of the exposition of the great commandment So, so a circumcised heart is a heart that loves God without reservations, with, with no mixed allegiances. Does this make sense to you? So, do, Jim, don't you, just as we had to define salvation, don't you have to define different faith because there's a saving faith versus just a faith mm-hmm. in... In facts, faith, yeah. facts, yeah. Other things. That's right. It doesn't include love. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's why I have the four points and not just two. But we're talking about saving. That's right, saving faith. So we're talking about what kind of faith does God 
recognize and deal with. So this is, this is why I'm here in this passage. This is the passage that Paul's going to quote, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Now, this command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. Now, what is the command that I give you today? A lot of scholars, a lot, both of Romans and of Deuteronomy, say the command. In Hebrew, singular noun doesn't necessarily mean that its referent is singular. It could be all examples of the thing. So the, the commandment that I'm, I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you, is all the commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. They, they consistently say this. But it's because they assume that what the Pentateuch is about is law. Are you with me? What if the Pentateuch is not about law at all? What if it's about faith relationship with God? Um, One book that is in process, I I haven't done much writing on it recently, is a book that I want to complete. I've, I've got maybe half of it written but in a form that is not usable yet, and it has to be made usable. But uh, it's the concept of faith in Genesis. And I start with Eve and show that her problem is not disobedience. The problem is that she trusts the word of the serpent and not the word of the Lord. Hmm? She believed the lie. That's right. And that led to disobedience, but the problem was there before the disobedience. Um, my favorite professor said, it is not clear what Eve fed Adam, but whatever it was, it has disagreed with the human race ever since. Uh, but it's not, it's not the eating of the fruit that's the problem. The problem is she saw that the, that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. And so she took the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. And he was not deceived. Yeah. So the, the issue then is um, Eve falls because of unbelief. Cain falls because he doesn't really trust, he really doesn't love God. And, and there's, there's, a, there's an argument to demonstrate that. Noah is a man who loves God with all his heart, soul, and strength. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are all men of faith in fundamentally different ways. And so I have a way of summarizing their faith. Abraham could trust God as long as he had direction from God about what to do. There, there's one exception to that, and that's the war with the kings of the east. Um, Isaac could trust God as long as he's forced into it. Jacob could trust God as long as he could come up with a scheme to solve his problem. And Joseph could trust God for anything. There's not a sin com- uh, uh, recorded against Joseph that I'm aware of. Uh, there may be one, but I'm not aware of it. Uh, so this is, this is a book that I'm, I'm wanting to get in print, too. So there's another one. Why haven't you written more? Because I'm, I'm only now worth anything <laughs> after these 50-plus years of study. Uh, so back to Deuteronomy 30 then um, this commandment I would argue is love the Lord your God that's the commandment 
All the rest of the commandments in Deuteronomy are specifying what it looks like when you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. If that's what the issue is, all the rest is just explanation. But the the great problem that Moses has... I'm sorry, Israel has and Moses is dealing with is their refusal to trust God. They really don't trust God. And so um, he will say later, I know that after my departure, you will, uh, you will turn away swiftly from the way of the Lord and you will follow your own desires. He knows that. Does God know it? Yeah. So, so all these laws are not going to make Israel a holy nation. But if you've rejected the way to blessing through faith, the only thing left is through obedience. And Paul and, and Moses knows that Israel's not going to do that either. So that the issue in Deuteronomy 11, 30 verses 11 to 14 is not keeping all the commandments as, let me show you, look at verse 14. Um, but the message is very near you in your mouth and in your heart so that you may follow it. What is the message? See, I, see today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord, love the Lord your God. Uh, where did it go? To walk in His way. Um, walk in his, yeah. yeah. Uh, so... So is he commanding them three things or one thing that will issue in, in others? I would say he's commanding them one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and that will solve all your obedience problems. Does this make sense? So from, from beginning to end, Genesis to Deuteronomy, Moses' message is a message of righteousness by faith. We have never read Genesis to Deuteronomy that way. What about verse 11? Can you unpack that? I don't know. Uh, this commandment that I'm giving to you is not it's too difficult. The, yeah, it's not too hard for you. Yeah. Let's, it seems too hard for me. What What is there? Well, let's, let's put it in the context of Israel's experience with God. What is there about the plagues in Egypt that made God hard to love? What is there about parting the Red Sea that made God hard to love? What is there about providing water at Mara that made God hard to love? What is there about providing food in the wilderness of Sin, I think it is, that made God hard to love? What is there at Rephidim when he provided water from Iraq that made God hard to love? What is there about feeding them with manna day after day after every day, every day for a year that made God hard to love? You see what I'm saying? Um, I say the answer was that my heart loves Myself more That's right. <laughs> That's right. But God is inherently lovely and lovable. And for Israel to fail to see that is because they haven't been paying attention to what God has done. Um, so the, the, the issue is that loving God for Moses' generation should be the most obvious response. But it isn't because they have no heart for God whatsoever. Uh, unless God changes them they can't love him but the law remains outside 
And as we shall see in Romans 6 and 7, the law actually spurs up more disobedience. Is, is, is he really showing that God is all-powerful and that scares them? That's what I was thinking. Well, yeah, he certainly is an overwhelming presence. Because, uh, um, you know, I could never be that. I, I, I mean, well, God's all-powerful. In light... Uh, it's past time to quit. Uh, we don't care. You don't care? Okay, then we'll go on a little bit longer. You know, it's 20 minutes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Um, so I'll show up 20 minutes early and start class 20 minutes early, and when you come in, you can you turn to, Deuteron- to uh, Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is an incredibly important passage, and it has not been given its full view. We tend to run to Exodus 20 because that's the Ten Commandments. Um, So we have Sunday school lessons about the Ten Commandments, but not about Exodus 19. Um, Exodus 19.1, In the third month from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came out into the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob, and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He's, He's calling on history as the guide for thinking about his relationship with them and their relationship with him. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant. Now, what covenant is in view? Say again? Abrahamic. I often get the answer of the Mosaic Covenant, but... There, I, have I talked to you about the two kinds of reading you must give every book of the Bible? Reading with the end in view is one. Have I talked to you about that? The other is reading as if again, as if reading it again for the first time, omitting from your interpretation everything you have not read yet. The only covenant Moses knew about when he heard God say this was the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when he wrote this, he knew about the Mosaic covenant. Um. And when he spoke these words to the people, they didn't know anything about the Mosaic Covenant. All they knew was the Abrahamic Covenant. So you keep that by circumcision. Um, you, so now, if, verse 5, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all, the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did they ever become a kingdom of priests? No. Why? What happened that they didn't become a kingdom of priests? These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people (laughs) responded together, We will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. Um, Verse 9. Um... The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord, and the Lord told Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, 
They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So far, everything works with everything you've always known of this passage. Verse 12, put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Now, if they're going to be a kingdom of priests, something has to happen. How do you know that a man yesterday was a layman and today he's a priest? What's happened between yesterday and today? Consecration. Say again? Consecration. Consecration. We, we, in, in Protestant circles, we call that ordination. Yes? Mm-hmm. Right? So he's ordained and suddenly he's a priest. Yes? Well, what's the ordination ritual for Israel? Well, first, it is wash your clothes, be prepared for the third day, for the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. Until their ordination is complete, they can't go, they can't do anything except stay outside the boundary. So verse 12, put boundaries for all the people around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on, go up on the mountain. Do you have go up on the mountain? Mm-hmm. Right? That's going to be important. Mark that. Don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. Why? Because they're not ordained yet. Verse 13, no, no hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with, with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they come near. It's the same phrase that was in verse 12. How come it's come near here and go up on in verse 12? It's the same phrase. The exact same Hebrew words. Alu, Yalu, Bahar. In both cases. Why is it go up on in verse 12 and it's go up to uh, uh, the, or, or go up uh, they may go your text reads go up to the mountain. Mine, te- mine remarkably enough here says they may go up the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated and consecrated them. The ordination ritual has begun. Yes? Consecrated them and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. All sexual activity must be kept separate from the service of God because there is too much fertility religion built into pagan thought and Israel is, is, is still partially pagan people so you got to keep that out of the worship of God so verse 14 then Moses came down from the mountain uh, verse 15 he said to the people be prepared by the third day uh, verse 16 on the third day so what's supposed to happen on the third day Yeah, well, what, what did... What, they come to the mountain. They've come, yeah, there's going to be a... Yeah, the third day, God's going to come down on the mountain, there's going to be a trumpet blast. What's supposed to happen when the trumpet blasts? The Lord will come down. Pardon? The Lord will come down. No, that's after the Lord comes down. No, they're supposed to go up. They're supposed to go up. So, on the third day, when morning came, there was thunder, lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Um... The Hebrew word for tremble here is the word harad. There, 
There are 15 words for, for trembling in Hebrew. I'm, I'm just stunned at that. <laughs> uh, I wasn't prepared for that. Um, this word is mostly used, not universally, but mostly, th- the verb occurs 39 times. And in most of the usage, it refers to trembling because you expect disaster to come. So Isaac trembles when Esau comes in for blessing. Uh, the brothers coming back from Egypt find their silver in their sacks and they tremble. How can we go back now? We're going to look like thieves. Yes? Um, and that's, that's pretty much common all the way through. There's, there are a few exceptions to that, but not many. Okay? Uh, is Israel trembling in awe at the majesty of God? Probably not. How, why do you say that? They seem like they're afraid of him. They're always afraid of him. They're always assuming after Mara, from that point on, they start talking about that you brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Yeah. Are you with they me? They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt. It was a lot easier back there. It was hard service, but it was a lot easier than out here. Uh, so you brought us out here in the wilderness to die. They think God's purpose is destructive. They have no heart for God. The law, the Romans four fifteen says the. Sorry, that's not Romans four. Um, where is that? The law is not established for a righteous man, but for sinners. I can't think where that is. We covered that in chapter three, didn't we? No, it's not three. Is it in five? Uh, the the law is not established for. Why, why don't you make law for righteous people? They don't need it. <laughs> so you make law for sinners. Yes? How does God's present wrath work? What does Romans 1 teach about how God's present wrath works? Thanks, Bob. You know the passage. Wherefore God handed them over to what? More sin. Keep spiraling down. Um, so, what does the law do? Does the law help Israel to become righteous? Or is there more sin after the law is given than there was before? When is the, when is, where is the, the, the golden calf incident? It's after the law is given. You shall have no other gods before me. Are you with me? So, so does the law help Israel to righteousness? It magnifies their sin. It multiplies their sin. It doesn't just make the sin worse. It makes it more. Um, did law help Adam and Eve to righteousness? And they didn't even have indwelling sin. Then why do you think law is going to help you to righteousness? So why doesn't Israel ever become a kingdom of priests? Because they don't trust God. They cannot be ordained. I was teaching this in Sunday school at First of Anne several years ago, and a lady said, but the, the boundary remains after verse 16. I said, of course it does. They can't go up. They're not holy. They have, they have no trust in God. And she couldn't accept that. Um, 
No, they were supposed to go up the mountain. That was what was promised in Exodus chapter 3. This, is the, this will be the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, y'all, and it's plural in Hebrew, y'all will worship me on this mountain. And our, some of our translations at. This one does, I think, says at this mountain. But the Hebrew preposition there is a word that usually means upon. Something rests upon another thing. I don't know any reason to read it differently than that. All of you will worship God on this mountain. Where, where does a priest function? Priest functions in a temple. Well, what distinguishes one building from another as a temple? The presence of God. So where is God now revealing himself on earth? And in Exodus, on the mountain. Then Mount Sinai is a geographical temple as I'm sorry as uh, the, the, the Garden of Eden was a geographical temple so Adam and Eve were treated like priests when they came out they were dressed in hides um, the, the Israelites were intended to be a kingdom of priests but they refused the privilege because they think God's purpose is to destroy them and so the law is given as a result this is Romans 6 and 7. This is what Romans 6 and 7 teaches. Law enables more sin. It doesn't curb sin. It actually causes sins to multiply. So, uh, just to finish this off, uh, then, um, the, the quotation in, in Romans uh, 10 is picking up these themes from Deuteronomy 30 and giving this, this is the, Romans 10 is the last place in Romans where Paul makes an argument for righteousness by faith. The righteousness of the law speaks this way, those who do these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way and in both cases he quotes Moses remarkably enough. So, so he believes Moses teaches righteousness by faith. We don't, but Paul does. Wonder who's wrong. Let's close with prayer. Thank you for the extra time. Father, uh, uh, we confess that we really would rather you just tell us what to do. Just, just, Just give me the plan laid out so I can follow it, and I'll follow it. But you know our hearts, and when you tell us those things, we want to rebel against it. So um, you have you have imposed upon us what you intended for the human race to do and be all all through history, namely a people who trust you, love you with all our heart, soul, and strength, and who who trust even when we can't see why there's a reason to trust. We remain people of faith. We don't give up our trust in you. Uh, So, Father, encourage us as our study progresses so that we may come to know you and walk with you more and more by faith, not so much knowing what is coming, but trusting that whatever comes doesn't matter because you're in it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.